Brethren, would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 11. You can find where we are in the Pew Bible on page 920. And we're looking this morning at chapter 11, verses 19 to 26. And before we come to the Word of God and read it, let's ask the Lord to help us understand the Scripture. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are the great speaking God who's been pleased to declare your word to us that we might know you and know what you require of us. And Lord, we pray as we come to your word this morning that you would shine your light on it, that you would instruct our hearts in the truth, that you would help us, O Lord, by the power of your spirit to understand what we are to know about you and how we're to live to honor our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, would you stand for the reading of the Scripture? Acts chapter 11, again starting in verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them all, to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Well, this is the word of the Lord, and may he be praised. Brethren, please be seated. Well, when one thinks of the history of, say, the Roman Empire, one city comes to mind, right? Which is it? It's Rome. And we could talk about the Roman Republic back in the 6th century B.C. all the way through, through the dictatorship Julius Caesar to Augustus Caesar, the Caesar when the Lord Jesus was born. And of course, there's a long history of good and bad emperors all seated on the throne in Rome. But in 330 AD, under the famous emperor Constantine, the central city in the empire was moved to Byzantium, later named Constantinople, the city of Constantine. And then for the next millennia, particularly with the fall of the Western Roman Empire in about 410, The Byzantium Empire rises to power on the world stage, so a new city takes prominence in world affairs. Well, our text, though having nothing to do with politics and empires, in this there's a similar shift about the seat of Christian expansion. Now, when we think of the central city and the purposes of God, what would we say that city is? It's Jerusalem. This is where the temple was located. This is where the Lord Jesus was crucified and rose again. 
This is where Jesus appeared to his disciples and he called them as witnesses and to begin their witness in what city? Jerusalem. However, as the gospel expands, as the church grows into new regions, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, the Gentile regions, a new city is going to emerge with prominence. Now, Jerusalem will always be significant in the purposes of God as they unfold in the book of Acts. It's still the place where the apostles are chiefly located, and it will be the place that gives stability and controversy, which we'll see in future weeks. But as we begin this move in the book of Acts from Peter's ministry to Paul's ministry, a new city comes into focus, and it's Antioch that we meet here in the region of Syria. Here in Acts chapter 11, we first hear of the gospel going to Antioch. And it's here that Saul of Tarsus, whom we know as the Apostle Paul, emerges with new prominence. It will be in Antioch that Paul will be sent out. This is his sending church as he will go on his various missionary journeys. And it will be to Antioch that he comes back to report. So as we see this New growth in the church. <clears throat> Let's note three things about our passage. First, I want you to note with me, providence and proclamation. Providence and proclamation. And you see it there in verses 19 to 21. Now, in verse 19 of Acts chapter 11, we really go back to the scene in Acts chapter 8, right after Stephen was stoned and the church was scattered. In Acts chapter 8, that scattering of the church took the church into the region of Judea and into Samaria. But the scattering wasn't confined to those areas. For now we read in verse 19 that the people who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now we're probably not all um, geography students of the Bible. Where are these places? Uh, Phoenicia is the famous coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, Jezebel's hometown. You remember her probably. And there's Cyprus. Uh, Cyprus is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It's about roughly 100 miles off the coast from the area of Antioch. And then there's Antioch itself, which is a huge Syrian city on the Orontes River and if you were looking at it this way, it's kind of just before you, you turn to go into modern-day Turkey. That's where it sits. In fact, the city of Antioch is part of Turkey today. Now, as we follow the gospel, as it expands in the book of Acts, this is really the farthest we've heard of the gospel going. Antioch is 300 miles away from Jerusalem. It's hard for 21st century people to even think about the significance of that. We could just get in a car and drive for five hours, 300 miles. But this would be about a week's walk, the ordinary way to get around for these folks. So they've gone a long way from Jerusalem carrying the gospel. And the picture Luke is giving us is that believers are carrying the gospel with them as they go all over the Roman Empire. But let us note the providential factor that has driven the gospel to these places. It was persecution. The devil is trying to squash the church. Stephen is stoned. Paul, Saul, before he's converted, was ravaging the people of God. People are dying for Christ. The brethren are on the run. And it appears to the eye that a great triumph is happening for the kingdom of Satan. 
And we'll get more into his triumphs in Acts chapter 12 when the apostles experienced their first martyrdom. And there's imprisonment. But while Satan thinks that he's stomping out the light of the gospel, actually, the light of the gospel is being carried to new places. Now, let's not sugarcoat the situation. Having to flee Jerusalem with gospel-hating killers after you would be dreadful. The heartache of abandoning your home and running to new regions, that's nearly incomprehensible for us to get. Most of us have absolutely no idea of being a forced refugee. But while these scattered believers go into other regions, and they might be tempted to tether their tongues, lest more persecution come their way, they absolutely did not do that. They travel to these cities, and what are they doing as they go? Look at the end of verse 19. They were speaking the word. What word? The same word Peter was preaching in the city of Caesarea to Cornelius back in Acts chapter 10. They are declaring the facts of what Christ has done. His birth, his life and ministry, his betrayal, arrest, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. They were speaking that Christ is the Lord and they were calling others to turn to Jesus. And as these scattered believers went out, they first spoke the word to a group to whom they had a natural connection. You see it in verse 19. They were speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now, Jews, of course, have the Scriptures. They have the hope of the Messiah. So as we've seen with Peter and John and Stephen and Philip, these scattered believers took the Old Testament and showed how it spoke of Christ, how Jesus fulfilled the promises of God. We can imagine these believers invading the synagogues in Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch as they go there, places with strong Jewish populations, and they start saying, let me tell you from that passage read in Isaiah who that's talking about. Let me tell you that psalm we just sang, how it focuses on Christ, the Messiah has come. And while it was believers who've been driven by suffering to go out, there's just an irrepressible joy to tell of their Savior. Do you remember back in Luke chapter 2 how Simeon and Anna, the old priest and the older lady, are waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the redemption of God's people to come? Well, it's here, and they're exploding with joy, and they just can't be quiet about it. So wherever they go, they've got to tell the word of Christ. And yet, let's note the glorious providence of God here. No one of us, of course, would want the horrors of persecution to hound us out of our homeland. No one would want the travails of soul that would come with friends being imprisoned or dying. But while Satan is raging, the Lord is using the devil's schemes against him. When Satan thinks he's going to silence the church, He's only causing the church to grow. God is overturning the devil's aims and orchestrating a massive church expansion. You see, brethren, the Lord is giving beauty for ashes. He's exchanging the garment of mourning over the persecution of the church and giving instead a garment of praise. And we should take note of how our God uses the most wretched sufferings to bring about great good. 
that really shouldn't surprise us if we've read the story of Joseph or David or Daniel or even more so as we look at the horrors of the cross but where Christ accomplished our redemption and His bloodshedding roots us in the greatest joy imaginable. This is another scene in the book of Acts from which we should draw tremendous encouragement. Satan tries so many things to assault us, to stop the progress of the gospel, to make our lives difficult. Let's not sugarcoat it about the devil. He raises up enemies against us. He can assault our body. He can drive us away from a place we love. He can set our households in chaos. But what he can never do is shut down the gospel. In fact, even as Satan does his worst, he's only contributing to his own downfall. The enemy of our souls cannot prevail. He wreaks havoc, but he can't win. The gospel will never go dark. In the providence of God, the Lord uses the darkest of times simply to carry Christ to new places. Praise God that our God reigns and the devil can't win. Praise God that the advance of the gospel can't be squashed. Praise God, brethren, in a world of trouble, we don't have to despair. Our tears can be turned into triumph as they are here. Was the gospel spreads under the providence of God, notice the movement in the proclamation of the gospel. Now initially, these groups of Jews scattered were speaking the word only to Jews, but then verse 20 tells us that some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, where's that? Cyprus, again, the island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Cyrene is on the North African coast modern-day Libya that's really a far-off place. These are both spots with strong Jewish communities living in the midst of Gentiles. So these Jews used to hanging out with Gentiles. They, verse 20, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, or the ESV footnote puts it, they spoke to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Now see the, the wonderful scene. Believers are now bouncing around the whole Mediterranean basin and they're carrying the gospel with them. And while we've already seen Gentiles converted, it's really been God-fearers that we've seen. That's not what we're seeing here. We're seeing the gospel go to the whole host of pagan Greeks. Now, we're not told exactly how the gospel was conveyed to the Greeks, but the impression here is that it happened not in the synagogues, where the God-fearers would be. For the phrase, preaching the Lord Jesus, it sounds like it's talking about what I'm doing right now, but actually it isn't. This word preaching does not have in mind a minister of the gospel or an apostle, an official evangelist ordained to proclaim the word. I have the same quibble I had back in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. The word here is not a herald of the gospel, the ordained guy. It's just the word for evangelism. What does that mean? Why does this matter? Well, these scattered believers are not preachers. They're just Christians who are captivated by the gospel of Christ. And they, this is the way I put it to you last time, they gossiped the word wherever they went. In the marketplace, among their co-workers, in the home, they're just looking for opportunities to talk about the Lord Jesus. They gossiped the word. 
Well, brethren, that's the stuff that we're called to do. We're looking for opportunities to interact with unbelievers, outsiders, Colossians chapter 4. We're praying for moments to speak of Jesus. We're ready to give the reason for the hope within us. These believers are doing this in their normal day-to-day interaction. And what happened as they gossiped of their Savior? Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, God blessed their efforts, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. These pagans heard about Jesus. They believed the message about Jesus. They turned from their idols to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, orienting their whole life around Christ. This, beloved, is relational evangelism at its best. Now, you may say to me, look, I'm not a speaker. I'm not a gifted expositor of the Scripture. I'm not going to be a person who's going to stand up in the pulpit and preach, and I'm I'm not going to be a person who's just going to stand up and teach other people. Well, okay. But you know that Christ is Lord. You know that there's one way, one truth, one life, Jesus Christ, and He is the only way to the Father. You know in a depressing world of trouble, there's one hope, is Christ. You know that there's forgiveness in no other name but the name of the Lord Jesus. There's only reconciliation in the Father with Christ. You know that the hope of glory lies in the Lord Jesus. So are you looking for opportunities to gossip the gospel? You don't have to be an eloquent speaker. Moses tried that excuse. It won't work. You just speak of Christ as you have opportunity. You don't have to be skilled in the great apologetic arts so you can go toe-to-toe in a debate with the most popular atheist in the world. You talk of the hope within you. You speak of Christ. A love for Christ spills out in telling others of Christ. What is that what we see in our lives? We have the most glorious news known to man. Your sin need not sink you in despair. Your sin need not lead you to destruction. Though you are a child of Adam and worthy of the judgment of God, you don't need to face the judgment of God. Jesus pardons sin. Jesus crushes the power of death. Jesus gives peace where troubled consciences squirm. Jesus gives hope when anxiety threatens to sink you. Do you see this? And are you ready to declare it? Now, I feel like there's an important caveat because while it's not stated here, it is stated in a book like Peter. If you're not a holy person, shut your mouth because you bring discredit to the gospel. A light has to go with you as you carry the gospel. Don't Take the gospel being a dark person. Flee sin. Shine with the truth. Shine with a transformed life. And then look for the opportunity to speak. Because our hopes are not rooted in happy feelings in holiday seasons. Our hopes are rooted in facts. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He has appeared. Declare Christ that sinners may turn to Him. But then secondly, see with me. Examination and exhortation. Verses 22 to 24. Antioch is a a major city on a travel thoroughfare. 
So it's not surprising that the word that the gospel came to them is getting back to Jerusalem and the church there. And when reports had come back about people in Samaria being converted, the apostle sent Peter to go check it out. Jerusalem church does something similar here, and they send Barnabas. He's going to examine the situation. Now, we've already met Barnabas, and we know he's not one of the twelve apostles. He's not one of the original seven deacons. But he's a trusted man among the saints in Jerusalem. He was known to have a gift of encouragement. That's what his name means, son of encouragement. He had a gift to strengthen the souls of the disciples. He could exposit the Scriptures faithfully, and the apostles clearly value his judgment. He's the guy who connected Saul of Tarsus when nobody wanted to hang out with him because we're not quite sure about that guy who was trying to kill us all. And he connected them to the apostles and he showed himself to have good discernment. So they decide to send Barnabas because of his skill. But it's not just Barnabas' gifts that make him a natural choice. Back in Acts chapter 4, we read that Barnabas was a native of Cyprus. This is one of the nationalities or groups that's taking the gospel to Antioch. He was accustomed as a Hellenist Jew interacting with a bunch of Gentiles. So it just made sense. He's the natural choice to go and examine things in Antioch. And what happens when he gets there? Look at verse 23. He saw the grace of God. He saw souls changed. He saw pagans putting away their idols and worshiping Jesus Christ. He saw an awakening of God's grace. And upon seeing this, he did not, like the circumcision party we met last time, start making up rules for the Gentiles to keep. No, he was glad at the saving power of God. He rejoiced in it. And having seen the work of God's grace in these new converts, verse 23, Barnabas exhorted them all. He, he does his namesake. He starts encouraging them, urging them, pleading with them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Or more literally, he tells them with purpose of heart. So a word of great determination. With purpose of heart, remain to the Lord. Barnabas and his young Christian wife has already seen the downfall of Ananias and Sapphira, those who claimed to know the Lord, but in deeds denied Him and lied. He's heard of the traitor Judas. He's heard of Simon Magnus, in Samaria, who was baptized, but then wanted to buy the Holy Spirit that he could manipulate the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's telling these people, brethren, you need to make sure that you have one heart to serve Christ. Be one thing I do, believers. Keep looking to Jesus. Forget your old life. Press toward what lies ahead. Dig in your heels in your soul to live for Christ and to be true to Him. Have resolve to go on with Jesus. And Barnabas is pressing a central doctrine that should get our attention here. The perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. With steadfast purpose, remain faithful. Now, we believe that once we're in Christ, we're in Him forever. We believe that the good work that our God has started in our hearts he will carry to completion, Philippians 1.6. We believe, John 10, Jesus says, 
The Father holds us in His hand and Jesus holds us in His hand. We believe. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the means of God keeping us is our perseverance. The means that God uses to push us along the journey till we get to heaven is we remain faithful. That's our responsibility. And this is why the Bible speaks with vigorous words about the life of Christianity. We fight, we wrestle, we run, we labor, we strive, we kill sin, we put on godliness. Because grace that saved us also trains us to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. So Barnabas is telling these brethren, look, don't be as those in Jesus' parable of the soils. Don't be rocky ground hearers where you heard the word and you immediately sprung up with joy, but then when trouble comes, you fall away. Don't be the thorny ground here where the good seed of the word is choked out by the anxieties of life, by the deceitfulness of riches, and the one that's really scary, the desire for other things. That something else, it doesn't matter what it is, just takes your attention away from Christ. Barnabas is saying, brethren, watch your heart. Ensure that your heart is resolved to live for Christ. And this is a great exhortation. And dear friends, we need it too. We need to be pressed to remain faithful. We need urging by a good man like Barnabas, this spirit-filled exhorter, to remain in the faith. Do you remember in Revelation, the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters to the seven churches. And every single one of those letters is challenging the people of God to persevere. Christ makes a promise to the one who overcomes or conquers. To the one who overcomes. To the one who overcomes. Be an overcoming Christian. Why do we need to be told that? Because dangers are legion around us. The world is seductive. The devil is busy pitching lies and causing trouble. Our own hearts are deceitful by nature and they appeal to us with fleshly indulgence. So we have to resolve in the depths of our being to walk with Jesus. If we use the analogy that Scripture uses of the relationship of Christ and the church is the relationship that, that we bear is a marriage. How many of you are willing to say, you know, I don't really have to work hard at being married. It's easy. I just kind of wake up and, and do it. If you say that, we need to have an appointment when I'm finished. <laughs> no, it's hard work to remain faithful. There are things you have to tell yourself. There's stuff that you have to do. Well, that's what Barnabas is telling this people. You're united with Christ in a covenant marriage. Well, go on with Jesus. Keep the riches of His spiritual blessings before you at all times. See the beauty of knowing the Lord, of the peace you have in your conscience, and the joy in the Holy Spirit. Delight in His Word. Heed His voice. Drive out the evil unbelief that resides in that heart of yours. Kick it out. Well, that's the message that we need to hear. And we get it as the gospel is preached. Do you see that's what Barnabas is doing? He's just preaching the gospel. The gospel, brethren, isn't just turn from sin and rest in Christ and the rest of life is easy. The gospel demands that we keep clinging to Jesus. 
Do you remember Jesus' initial call when he started talking about his suffering? And he told the disciples, no one can be my disciple unless he does what? Denies himself, takes up his cross and follows me. But Luke added a word that was really interesting. That he denies himself and takes up his cross. Do you remember the word? Daily. Daily. You take up your cross daily and follow the Lord. Living for Christ is a daily endeavor. Well, Barnabas is pressing that to their hearts. And then having examined the situation in Antioch, he just keeps on exhorting them with the gospel. And what happens? Look at verse 24. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Now, people were already being converted before Barnabas got there. But under his preaching of the gospel, the Lord keeps plucking souls from paganism and brings them into the church. And I want you to see here the parallel occurrence between being instructed at the same time that souls are being converted. There's not one message for the lost. You come to church, oh, I'm, I'm lost, I'm a pagan. Well, go to room number two where you hear the special message just for them. And then the message for everybody who's already a Christian, you go to room number one where you get this message. No, the message is the same. Turn to Christ, rest in Christ, give your life to Christ, see the forgiving power of the Lord Jesus and keep coming back to Jesus. The gospel is not a message we only give to the people in darkness and then if we're already converted, we move on to something else. No, brethren, we keep hearing the same gospel and it's that old, old story of Jesus and His love, of Jesus' pardoning grace that we keep hearing as the Word is preached. Sinners are saved and saints are built up because the Word of the cross creates faith and sustains faith. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, that the Word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. That's an interesting way to put it. It is the wisdom and power of God. We're being saved as the Word washes over our souls. So what we need in the church, if you're already a Christian, you don't now just need how-to manuals, a bunch of topical message, um, how to have a, a good marriage, how to have a better kid by next week. You need doctrine. You need the doctrine of Christ. You need the doctrine of salvation. You need the doctrine of the Spirit's work pressed to your soul so that your life is controlled by the love of Christ. And that is what the apostles and the co-laborers like Barnabas are giving the people. They're preaching evangelistically and with the goal of seeing growth in the people of God. That is the model for today. Then finally, see with me. A new teacher and a new name. Verses 25 and 26. As the church rapidly grows in Antioch, Barnabas immediately recognizes with all these people added, he can't keep pace. Barnabas is a humble man. He's not interested in being the guy, right? You know the, you know the type? He's not interested in having his name up in lights. Oh, Barnabas, the great preacher. No, he wants to do good to these people. He wants to shepherd them well. He wants to give them the word with regularity. So he sees more laborers are needed. But who's going to be suited for this kind of ministry among a bunch of Gentiles. Well, it just so happens Barnabas thinks to himself, I know a guy. 
on the trade route up from Antioch and to the west, about 125 miles from Antioch, was the city of Tarsus. Now, back in Acts chapter 9, Barnabas introduced Saul, now we know him as the Apostle Paul, the converted Saul to the apostles. Saul preached the gospel to the Jews there, the Hellenist Jews that he was a part of that stoned Stephen. And they hated Saul for doing it. They hated this now lover of Christ and they plotted to kill him. The believers heard of this plot and they swiftly sent Saul off to Tarsus, his hometown. That was roughly eight to ten years ago by the time we reach Acts chapter 11. And we can piece that together from Galatians chapter 1. Now, what was Saul doing in Tarsus? Probably the same thing he was always doing, preaching. These are silent years to us. We just know from Galatians 1 that in the regions of Syria and Cilicia, he was preaching. It's probably here that he suffers some of those things we read about in 2 Corinthians 11, the beatings and the imprisonment. Well, we're not given the details of his ministry, but Barnabas knows Saul is not a novice. He's a Christ-called, capable minister with zeal to stand for Christ in the face of paganism. So, verse 25, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And the intent here, the language is, he, he searched him out. He didn't have an address. <clears throat> Imagine the fun that was for Barnabas. He goes to the city and he just tries to find Saul somewhere. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. We're not told how this went down. Barnabas saying, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. We don't know how it happened, but probably by the Spirit's internal work of desire, moving in the soul, an internal conviction, Saul has a sense that he should leave his present ministry in Tarsus and move to Antioch. Now, I don't have time to talk to you about the mysterious thing when God moves His preachers around. But we clearly see he does that. How does he do it? We're not told here. Probably by some internal conviction. But Saul goes to Antioch for the greater good of the kingdom of God. And now with more hands to labor, Barnabas and Saul together, verse 26, for a whole year met with the church and taught a great many people. Like the early church in Jerusalem was a people devoted to the teaching of the apostles, Acts 2.42, here these growing believers in Antioch are devoted to the regular and frequent preaching and teaching of Barnabas and Saul. And the implication is clearly, the people at Antioch, the Christians there, are hungry for the Word of God. They crave spiritual growth. And what means does God use to grow His people in their faith? Even in apostolic times, with miracles that happen, what are the ordinary means that God uses to grow His people? It's the exposition of the Word. As the Word of God is taught and proclaimed, people are rooted and grounded in Christ and in His love and enabled to increase in their faith. Brethren, are we being rooted and grounded as we increasingly hear the Word of God proclaimed among us? Is there a yearning in our soul for the Word? The Apostle Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we crave the pure spiritual milk 
like newborn babies. And he's talking about not just reading your Bible. He's talking about the preached word in context. Do you crave the preaching of the word? Are you hungry to be taught so that you can grow up in salvation? Again, we're seeing the value of this solid teaching and preaching to strengthen the church. The chief means of discipleship, the chief means of advancing believers in the grace and knowledge of Christ is the proclamation of His Word. And in our day, when so many, when in so many churches, preaching is given less and less prominence, when there are less sermons and shorter sermons, and then when in that preaching, true exposition and application of the Word of God is just given short shrift to stories and moralisms and shallow ethics. We need to see the apostolic pattern. This is normative what we're doing. We're not making stuff up. We're not just being traditional. We're following what Scripture says about this issue. And what we're seeing in Christendom is a destruction of what Christ has established right here. Listen to how J.C. Ryle puts it. You knew I had to get a quote in. A preaching ministry is absolutely essential to the health and prosperity of the visible church. Ralph says the pulpit is the place where the chief victories of the gospel have always been won. And no church has ever done much for the advancement of true religion where the pulpit has been neglected. Ryle closes with this thought. Would we know whether a minister is a truly apostolical man, a man following the apostles? If he is, he will give the best of his attention to his sermons. Preaching is central in the purposes of God. What God's people need is not dull, boring, lifeless, shallow words that are trite and full of common everyday expressions that you can find on Facebook that anybody could believe. What God's people need is the Word of God given to them with life and light and power and fire and love where Christ is exalted and sin is exposed and the people of God are told plainly what to believe and what to do because that fosters the growth of the saints. And that's what these men are giving the church. How do we know that that's what they gave the church? Well, have you ever read a letter of the Apostle Paul and seen how rich it is with doctrinal and practical instruction? So they get a new man. But then the church gets a new name. Look at verse 26. We close with this. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So significant is this growth of believers that in Antioch, the surrounding people give them a name. We might say the believers had a reputation. They were a people belonging to or identified with Christ. That's the sense of the name Christians. They didn't call themselves this name. The folks in Antioch, presumably because these believers were always talking about Christ and consumed with Christ, they branded them the people of Christ. Now we've lived for 2,000 years with this title roughly, and it's a, a title that many in our day use. But are they using it incorrectly? What, what should Christian be? People totally consumed with Jesus. People who bear the name of Christ. Totally wrapped up with Christ. So much so that the watching world knows we're Christians 
because of our attachment to Jesus. Brethren, is that the case with us? Are we not just known by a name? Are we known because we're a people focused on Jesus, speaking for Jesus, honoring Christ in our lives? Are we following the voice of Christ? Because if we take the name but fail to live as we should, what we're really doing is taking His name in vain. How are we representing the name of Christ? This is no little thing. It's a big deal that my glorious Savior has stooped to make me His own. And what an incredible thing has happened in this city. We had converted Jews come to it, and Greeks converted, and now the people are no longer known as Jewish people or Greek people. What are they known? It's a third group. Christians. Here we have, as Peter will later say, a chosen race, a people set apart to serve Christ. May we live that way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise You for Your amazing grace and how You use the power of Your Word proclaimed to awaken souls and strengthen saints. And Lord, we pray that Your Word would have its effect in our hearts. Grow us in the grace of Christ and help us to be people who shine with gospel light, gossiping the Word wherever we go. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.